Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every parent in this room wants to do right by you in the way that they raise their children. Lord, help us to not get in the way of this. Help us to not be ruled by emotions that take us off course to not be seduced by the world's so-called wisdom when it comes to parenting. Help us to keep your word on the forefront of our minds and to be guided by your spirit. And we pray today that you deepen our understanding of what your word teaches about how we are to parent, that we may present these children to you as those who are wise and not those who are foolish, as children who are obedient and not rebellious, as children whose hearts have been conditioned by us to trust authority instead of denounce it. And I pray that you give me grace in this time as I give these things to your people once more. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we actually conclude our series through Proverbs, and we will do this by continuing to examine the parent and child relationship vis-a-vis Proverbs. And shortly we're going to get to the body of our study, but because children are grossly debased and abused to the point of government-sponsored sexual mutilation and murder in our particular society, I think there is value in beginning by reaffirming one of the most basic points concerning children, and that is that they are a gift. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And so children then are not parasites, as they are called by the feminist witches, nor are they little parasites, as they are considered by the climate change witches and priests, nor are they burdens to be relieved of or avoided in the first place. They are simply and truly blessings from above. And on this basis, how many children should Christian parents have? I should have as many as the Lord would be good enough to give them. Outside of a scenario where it is a legitimate health risk to the mother. But outside of that, there's only one answer to that question for believing parents. 
Now, abortion is a greater evil than contraception, to be sure, but contraception is, in, is indeed still a great evil. If it is a gift, you ought not be limiting it. And if you are limiting it, it would seem to indicate that you don't actually regard it as a gift. It is not for you to limit the blessings of God, but to celebrate them. So then children are a gift, but like any gift, this one needs to be steward and stewarded. And because children are one of God's greatest gifts, they need to be stewarded in a manner that's consistent with their precious natures. And so for the knowledge of how to steward these gifts very, very carefully, and in accord with Christian virtue, we turn again to Solomon. Uh, because I've already said a lot about parenting and bits and pieces and other sermons, this is going to kind of be a shepherd's pie type lesson. If you know what I mean by that, shepherd's pie is the green beans from Tuesday, the mashed potatoes from Thursday, the peas from whatever other day, and then at the end of the week, you take the ground beef from Taco Tuesday or whatever, you throw that together, and you make a meal out of it. This is going to be a little bit like that, so forgive me if there's not as straight of a line through this as hopefully there is normally, but these are all critical aspects, and they remain, and so they have to be addressed. And so I will address them all now. So point number one, if you allow your children unsupervised or lightly supervised access to the Internet, you are committing a grave sin. Let me say it again. If you allow your children unsupervised or lightly supervised access to the Internet, you are committing a grave sin. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it seems to me that this issue of open access or nearly open access to the Internet for children is like the new bikini issue that was a thing when I was a kid. I think it is still a thing. You'd see young ladies from ostensibly Christian homes wearing bathing suits that were completely and utterly inappropriate and clothing in general, and it was just accepted because everybody did it. And you think to yourself, how does this in any way possibly comport with what the Bible teaches about modesty? And of course it doesn't, but nobody even wants to have that question. They just write you off as absurd because, again, everybody's doing it. That's the justification. Likewise, nobody in their right minds thinks that Christian parents can simply justifiably open up a world of filth and say, here you go, kid, have a ball. Yet so many do it. And then pastors don't raise this because when we do, people get very, very uncomfortable. The reactions range from being, again, uncomfortable to being very upset and basically the objection is, where's the chapter and verse for that? Yes, that's your application. Well, that's certainly a fair question. And indeed, it's the right question. You should always be asking, what says the text? And we will get to those answers. And they are very, very clear. But first off, let's establish some fundamentals that every parent needs to understand here. First, children have rights given to them by God. But they do not, as children, possess the full spectrum of what are rightly called human rights. And that statement makes me sound very much like an American, but I assure you that's only because the American founders sounded so much like Christians. But back to the point about God-given rights. Here are some questions for you. According to God's Word, do adults have freedom of speech? Sort of, kind of. We have limited freedom of speech before men. We do not have freedom of speech before God because God is going to judge every word that comes out of our mouths. We know according to Scripture. So, yes, but not in an absolute sense. 
But do children have that same degree of freedom of speech? Of course they don't. Later, we're going to consider the necessity of physical discipline per Proverbs, and many of the occasions where this physical discipline needs to be exercised involve the speech of a child when they lose their minds and say things they ought not. Next, do you as an adult have freedom of association? Yes, again, before men, you can get together with whom you choose, as long as you're not uh, engaged in any criminal activity. Before God, you don't. But before men, as far as the state is concerned, yes. Do your children have that same freedom of association? No. They don't have the right to associate with thieves and drunkards. And they don't have the right to not associate with church people and go to church. Even though certain parents have said that they don't want to force religion upon their children and bring them, that's absurd. That is your obligation. And so they don't have that right. And of course, if they did have these rights, then the mandates given to Christian parents concerning the rearing of their children would be nullified. And these mandates are all over the place in Scripture, but they are perhaps as well summed up in the latter portion of Ephesians 6.4 as anywhere. It begins with, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, and here it is, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If children can do whatever they want, then parents cannot do what they are commanded to do with respect to raising them. So a child's God-given rights can really be summed up by saying that God has given them the right to life and to nurture, and parents are the stewards of these rights while the children are young. But the rest of the rights that come with adulthood, having not yet been conferred upon the child, are held in trust by dad and mom, and thus dad and mom are responsible before the Lord to ensure that the children honor the Lord with their behavior, irrespective of their desires, because their desires are foolish, because they are foolish, according to Solomon. So these things understood. How many of the rights that we parents hold in trust for our children are being exercised in a godless way with our full endorsement when we give our children unsupervised or lightly supervised access to the Internet? Let us begin to count the ways. And this will not be an exhaustive list, but it will be a start. Consider First Proverbs 14.7. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern Words of knowledge, I submit to you that were it not for the presence of fools, the internet would be a desert. And so not only are you not fulfilling your obligation before the Lord to remove them from the presence of fools, you are throwing them into an ocean of them. Consider also Proverbs fourteen fifteen a the naive believes everything. Are not your children naive? If you do not believe that they are naive, you are, in fact, naive. Of course they are. This is why Satan focuses so much energy and effort on getting to little children. This is why the public education system has been so critical in his twisting of this society and getting it to where it is now. Because if you get to a reasonable, rational adult and you tell them, that a, a boy can bingo presto become a girl, that's probably going to be rejected by most people. You've got to get to them when they are supremely malleable. He knows this. You as a Christian parent, you've got to recognize this too. And then think accordingly. Consider also Proverbs 14.1, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. 
how many social influencers of the female variety, mostly, are house builders versus those who tear houses down? Your teenage girls are listening to this. Your preteen girls are listening to this. This is forming their world view. How many of these influencers exhibit the kind of contentment seen in Proverbs 31? And that venerated woman, verse 18, she senses that her gain is good. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles at the future. How much of the content on social media and YouTube and TikTok is devoted to complaining? The Internet promotes contentment in the same way that modern pop music promotes deep intellectualism and sexual purity. Further, how many children became or are becoming like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes because they have been made lazy by parents who allowed them to waste their lives on the Internet? Per Proverbs 10.26. Or how about this one? Proverbs, 14, or Proverbs 24, 21 through 22. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. How many of the people that your children are interacting with on the Internet are subject to profound, calamitous change? Can it get any more profound and calamitous than going from boy to girl to smurf to mermaid to cat to insert other crazy thing next? They vacillate constantly. That's the only thing that is constant about the perspective of the world, that it is ever changing. It's in a constant state of flux, And it's just morphing into something worse and worse as time goes on. Consider also Proverbs 23, 27. For a harlot is a deep pit and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. This being true, if you give your sons or your daughters access to this, have you not dug the pit for them by putting them inside the most expansive brothel with the biggest catalog in the history of the human race? This is one of the things I can't get over when you give your teenage children access to things like Facebook or Twitter. I remember when I was on there, regularly getting invitations to go to porn sites on my private message. One of the benefits of not being on there. Your children are getting those things. I'm a grown man, and I don't want the opportunity to do that with the self-control of a grown man. You're doing that with a child. And further, how much hatred that stirs up strife is on the internet versus the love that covers all transgressions from Proverbs 10.12. Consider also Proverbs 30.32. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself or if you've plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. How much ungodly self-exaltation is on the internet? It's like asking how many grains of sand are on all the earth's beaches combined. So then, parents, let us dispense with the absurd notion that giving your child access to the Internet that is not rigorously monitored is anything but one of the greatest of sins that can be committed by a parent. This is a grave evil. I know it's common, but that doesn't change the fact that it's wicked. This is the closest thing that you'll ever get to literally handing your child to the devil if he was incarnate right before you, saying, here you go. Twist him and destroy him. Tie his soul up in knots. 
But even in spite of all this, you can still hear the ridiculous objections. But all my 16-year-old daughters have friends with Instagram accounts. And how will she interact with him? My kids feel left out when the pagans have conversations based upon interactions online about all the pagan things that they do. This pernicious trend in evangelical churches needs to be destroyed. And if it is not destroyed for each individual parent, then it needs to be so stigmatized that they don't feel at liberty to say out loud that they have given their children access to these things. That is how shameful this is. It needs to be regarded as such. It's along the same order, the guy coming in, and I've been in churches where this has happened, going back to the opening. He comes into a church and he brags about his vasectomy so that he doesn't have to have any more blessings of the Lord. This is equally evil. It needs to stop. If you're doing this with your kids, they don't actually need the smartphone. They don't need the other device. They don't need access to that trash. It doesn't matter that they live in 2023. It doesn't matter that you're going to be seen as some kind of Puritan. They will ruin themselves with this. You will ruin them by giving them access to it, and you'll stand before the Lord, and you'll give an account for that. It's a predictable outcome to this sort of thing, so don't be surprised when they turn their hearts to the devil later in life. Point number two, changing gears a little bit. These are the P's from Tuesday, I guess. Engage with your children's ideas and make them defend theirs. Proverbs 27:17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's a very well-known passage, but it is one that I think is seldom applied to parenting, which seems strange to me considering that the book in which it occurs is from start to finish a father teaching his own children. But as far as the specific points of wisdom that Solomon uses to sharpen his children, we've spoke about, spoken about these things throughout in every single sermon, so here I want to consider his manner instead. And what I really want to emphasize is that while Solomon is respectful in the way that he speaks to his sons, and he is unquestionably loving, he is not nice, which is actually a really good thing because nice is not a biblical or godly virtue. Kindness is, compassion is, love is, but the world's concept of nice is just something that Satan has used to deceive Christian people into inaction because we don't want to be considered mean by the people that are trying to destroy our children in this civilization. So he's not nice. He's confrontational. He is what many people would even consider abrasive. He's certainly offensive. Consider the use, reoccurring of the term fool. He often uses that as a pejorative to hang around the head of a dunce. Naive is another ignominious title conferred regularly. Harlot or whore is another. Sluggard, glutton, drunkard, babbler. None of these are compliments. And this sort of straightforward speech is in keeping with iron sharpening iron. I want you to take that concept out of the abstract for a minute, and I want you to think about it literally, especially for those of you that have tools and you have a grinder, say, or you have uh, metal files and you've done this. How does this look? in real life? How does it feel? What happens when you take a blunt piece of metal and you file down the edge so that it becomes more profitable and more useful? You have chunks flying off. You have sparks flying. It's not a gentle process. This is how you need to engage your children. We have a household of vigorous debate. 
My children have, on more than one occasion, told me that they don't agree with a particular thing that I said from the pulpit. Now, I don't encourage disagreement of that kind, but I do certainly encourage them to voice that when it's there, insofar as they're respectful about it, and they always are because they're not crazy enough to be disrespectful about it to me. But if they are respectful and they voice these concerns, they're never going to be punished for that sort of thing. Again, I encourage it. But I will say, if they're going to push back on me, they'd better be ready because I, too, will push back against them. And as I do it, I'm not going to hold their hand. I'm not going to reassure them that every idea that they have is a good one. I'm not going to give them a participation trophy and say, but at least you tried. If your argumentation is flawed in the Hetzler household, you will be told this plainly. If it is internally inconsistent, you will be told that. If it is self-contradictory, you will be told that too. If it is just flat-out dumb, you may also be told that. And what this is going to achieve is the formation of a systematic, cohesive body of thought grounded in a Christian worldview. Okay? Wisdom is a network. Everything is connected to everything else. Now, how many times, for example, in this series have I referenced the creation account over and over and over again? And that's because I can't treat the book of Proverbs in isolation because it exists within an interconnected matrix, one thing bearing upon another thing. I was talking to you this morning, and we were talking about my inconsistency as a child in holding to, in theory, call it a theoretical Arminian view, but in reality, in my experience of Christianity, they didn't match up. Now, that inconsistency would have been worked out a lot sooner had somebody pushed back against me, and I would have stopped with that stupid nonsense about in order for a gift to be given it has to be received and God looks down the corridors of time and all that baloney. But nobody did. So I hope to give this gift to my children. You must teach your children how to connect thoughts and ideas. It is really not good enough for a teenager to only know what not to do. They have got to know why not. They have to understand the implications, for example, of being an image bearer whose image has been fully restored by Christ and the impact of this upon their behavior. Your child, all of you, all of you in here with children, right now, they have all kinds of stupid, terrible, wicked ideas. It doesn't matter if they say, yes, Dad, yes, Mom, and you never hear them. They're still there. And you can let them fester and rot, or you can root them out. Now, it should be noted that in order for this to happen, you've got to cultivate the kind of environment that allows your kids to feel comfortable engaging with you in this way. And this actually goes back to the previous sermon and laying that foundation of love with clear expressions of love and affection. Remember the, the constant kisses, the constant words of affirmation, not of their dumb ideas, but of who they are as people and of the relationship and the fact that you will always be there? Because I have done this, my children understand that me saying that idea is really stupid does not mean that I'm going to turn my back on them or something. And the best example, I think, of cultivating this kind of open forum is Christ, as is always the case. But think about Peter. Peter had consistently bad ideas, and those bad ideas reflected poorly upon Peter. But the fact that Peter was still willing to continue to say those things after having already been rebuked reflects very well upon Jesus, doesn't it? 
And Jesus wasn't nice in response to Peter, most notably when he referred to him as the devil. But Peter still never stopped talking because he knew that Jesus would never leave him or forsake him, irrespective of the quality of his ideas. Jesus was simultaneously a ferocious defender of truth and so gentle and accepting that you could lay your head upon his breast. And that is what parents and especially fathers need to model themselves after. I am the one who will push back hard against your ideas, but I am the one who will love you irrespective of what you say, what you think. And of course it goes without saying that in order for iron to sharpen iron, iron needs to be iron in the first place. Okay, so the command to know the word of God is binding upon pastors in a special way, but brother and sister, father and mother, it's binding on you too. You can't engage your children in this way if you don't understand the word of God. So you must. And finally, to close this point, let me give you what I found to be very encouraging as I was doing this study. It was one of those things that sort of, for me, has gotten lost through so many studies in Proverbs. But um, when I focused in on it, I thought it was unbelievably profound. Proverbs twenty-seven, eleven: Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. If it's not readily apparent to you what that means, let me read it again. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may reply to him who reproaches me. Do you understand what's happening there? There's an exchange. Life has come full circle. This child who from their youth has been imparted all this wisdom by this father is no longer in their youth. They have come of age. And the father now finds himself in a pickle. And who does he turn to for counsel? He turns to that son. Now, see, we think about investing in our children and therefore making an investment in the world, sending these arrows out into the world to go further than we did. And that's very true and very real. But it turns out you're also making an investment in yourself. This child, because you have given them the foundation of wisdom, is able to go further than you because they started at a place that took you a very long time to get to in the first place. I don't want my children to have the same degree of wisdom as me. I want them to be far wiser. And then when times get rough, I want to be able to turn to them and glean from their wisdom. And if you have established that foundation, that time will come. Point number three, speak positively as well as negatively of, your, of sexuality with your children and model a godly kind of sexuality in your home. And because we've already emphasized the negative, we're going to focus here more on the positive. Here's Solomon again speaking to his sons by way of reminder at this point. Proverbs five fifteen through 19, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. That's a beautiful description of a beautiful act. The gracefulness of the movements of women. And he's saying, want that. Pursue that. That statement promotes the desire for good and godly sex in Solomon's children, and that's the point. All right, Sexual perversions and distortions and corruptions abound 
and they need to be denounced by you. But the pursuit of holiness isn't simply a matter of avoiding perversity. It's a matter of also pursuing the good and godly gift that has been perverted. And that sort of veneration of godly sexuality can also be seen in Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid, or more clearly interpreted as it is interpreted, in several other virgin, versions, virgin. Maid is virgin. So it is a man and a woman on their wedding nights. That is the way that he is referring to. There is a majesty and an artfulness in the human form and in the constitution of each solitary person. But when these forms meet in the intimate act, and one body enters and the other body receives. This is truly a revelation of the divine mind. Now, these are actually the words of an unknown sage of that age, probably a contemporary of Solomon, a man who goes by the name of Agur. But according to Agur, the sexual union between man and woman is as enigmatically wonderful as the way of an eagle in the sky. Have you ever watched that? You see him pitch and you see him roll. You see subtle adjustments in the pattern of his flight as a feather or two rise on this side. You see him read the currents of air, and then you see him with force and power swoop down from the sky because he has found something that he is going to pursue. And so Agur says, I see it, but I don't really understand it. It is beyond me. Same thing with the way of a serpent on a rock. How does this creature move as efficiently as it does without appendages? And there's a grace and there's a rhythm. Way of a ship in the middle of the sea. You have this torrential body. This void of gray and blue. And you have this tiny little man-made vessel that is able to navigate it using the winds and the stars. And the greatest of these enigmatic wonders, though he saves for last, and it is man and woman bound together in love's embrace. Like the eagle in the sky, their movements are subtle and profound. Like the serpent, they move and advance forward in a way that is unique in all of nature. And like the ship that navigates a vast body of water, there is the man and the woman navigating the conjugal act. And these bodies in motion exemplify the wonder of all of these miracles in creation. And the God who created the eagle and the serpent and the sea is glorified in them, and he is greatly glorified in this act of procreation and recreation and spiritual and emotional union between his image bearers, and your children must know this. God did not turn away when Adam consummated the relationship with Eve. He was greatly honored and glorified by it, as he is in every marriage where Christ is at the center. As we enter into that relationship again and again, we alone are the race that bears the image of God. And it is fitting that the procreative act by which we multiply more image bearers would have been created by God to be an incomparable phenomena. And indeed, it is. And as Solomon represents sex in this way to his children personally and also through the testimony of Agur, so we must. 
And for us, it's even more pressing, I think, than it was for him because Solomon wasn't in a situation where he was watching, say, an entirely wholesome cartoon on some outlet or another, and then a, a commercial pops up with gross sexual acts being displayed in a very perverse way. Nor do I imagine that in Solomon's day there were billboards covered in near-naked bodies and sometimes not so near. Nor were there magazine racks covered in uncovered flesh at the checkout aisle that serve as a sort of toll booth to allow you to leave in order to take the food home that you need to survive. Our children are inundated constantly with godless expressions of sexuality. And whatever volume, by the way, that you think or whatever volume of perversity you think they're seeing, I think you can probably magnify that by about a factor of 10. They're seeing a lot more than we're aware of. So we all need to be vigilant to protect them as we can. But you need to not be so foolish as to think that you can protect them from everything, that they're not seeing what they obviously are seeing. So if it cannot be altogether stopped, it must be consistently countered. And this is how you counter it. You speak of sex and marriage between man and wife as the great and glorious gift of God that it is, and you speak of it this way often. But here are the rules, because the rules matter, and these rules are established by Scripture. When sex is spoken of negatively, depending upon the children's age, it may be spoken of graphically in order to warn. Okay, we looked at that passage. It was in a previous sermon. I'm drawing a total blank right now. Uh, Israel was being described very negatively as a harlot. So when you have negative representations like that, you have very graphic language. But when sex is spoken of positively, not in a context of warn, you have euphemisms. Okay? It's put behind a veil. It's honored in that way. You have graceful doe, loving hind, for example. You don't have some overt, graphic description of the good and godly act. Uh, Song of Solomon operates in this way. As you know, you have euphemisms, and what the euphemisms actually mean is incredibly specific, but it's given in euphemistic language because you don't want to inflame the kind of passions that will incite sin in your children. That's the opposite of the point. I remember a long time ago I read Every Man's Battle, or I should say I read... 25, 50 pages of Every Man's Battle. It's a very popular book about sexual purity and terrible. And I'm one who will read every doggone page of every book ever. I'm just stubborn like that. Even if I hated the first 200 pages, I'm going to finish it because I can't stand the idea that maybe on one of those pages that remain, there is some profound bit of wisdom that's going to help me live. And I just left it there. Okay, so that's like a personal thing. And I dropped that book like a sack of potatoes because he's talking about his sexual struggles and he's giving graphic representations of these scenes that caused him to struggle and I remember thinking and I didn't have any like this was a long time ago so I didn't I didn't know nearly what I know now about this subject but I do recall thinking it seems to me that if your objective as you have stated it is to help men not lust giving vivid descriptions of the things that caused you to lust is probably not a great way to achieve that. And so again, I dropped that book, never picked it back up, and then I did read eventually a book called Finally Free by Heath Lambert, and he references this and explains all of this. He does a wonderful job in that book. So when you're speaking to your children, 
bear these things in mind. There's a difference between showing them something that's worthy of pursuing and opening their eyes to things that you shouldn't. And even if their eyes have been opened already by the world, that doesn't mean that you need to help that any further than it has already been. Also, you can give your children the statistics. And you can listen to me, little children, you probably won't believe me, but every statistic bears this out. I'm telling you the truth. Your parents can very carefully look online with you afterwards. People who are not promiscuous before marriage have way more sex than people who were. Way more. Also, people who are married have way more sex than people who are not because you're in that covenant. And you can fully and completely communicate also, parents, that people are not soulish flesh sacks. And so everything that we experience is experienced body and soul. And that's why, contrary to Hollywood depictions of sex, the best sex is experienced with somebody that you love and trust. And that's one of the reasons why married couples have so much more of it. Now, guys, when they get together, they just lie about all this stuff. So it's very difficult to get accurate information. But I do remember a really intriguing and interesting conversation that I had with an unbelieving friend after I graduated high school. I was already engaged. I think I was 18, 19. And so, and I was, I had not yet done any of that. And um, he had, and it was the first, I think, candid conversation where somebody just told the truth and he said it was terrible. And he said, and he had had multiple experiences and they were all terrible. And without using exactly the words that I'm using, the reason why this was true is because he didn't know these women. He didn't trust them. You know, you see these scenes in movies, and it's not a reflection of real life. If you're bearing your body in that way, that requires trust in order for it to actually be good, which requires covenant. And that's one of the benefits of only doing this in a covenant relationship. And finally, before we close this point, I want to emphasize the need for mom and dad to positively model godly sexuality. Whatever you may think when I say that, I I think you're probably wrong. Sexuality is, is much more broad than we think of it as being. We think of it in terms of the explicit act. Okay, it's not just that. It's well beyond that. It's a father grabbing his wife by the waist and pulling her into him in the kitchen in the normal course of life. It's her shooting him one of those glances that means what you know it means, but the children don't. Okay, they will put all of these things together as they move forward in life in ways that they don't even necessarily understand, but this will give them a positive perspective on sexuality. So I guess what I'm saying is mom, love dad, dad, love mom, and a lot of that will work its way out. Okay, point number four. Physical discipline is not the suggested course. It is God's clear command for every parent with every child. Physical discipline, spanking, is not the suggested course. It is God's clear command for every parent with every child. Now, we're about to consider the means of establishing discipline in a child's heart. But before we do, I want to remind you of the desired end. Okay, disciplining children, I'm going to lie to you or misrepresent this. It's a Herculean act that no good parent enjoys. And so because carrying it out is so unnatural and burdensome and undesirable, starting, I think, with a focus on the result is helpful. And so here is the result of consistent physical 
discipline. Proverbs 23, 25, Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who rejoice let her rejoice who gave birth to you. And you will get to that place if you have sufficiently tanned that kid's hide, as my parents used to say about me. Um, but because you and I are also not sufficiently motivated by the good result of obedience as parents, I'll also remind you here of the consequences of your disobedience, if indeed you are disobedient. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. He becomes a shameful human being. And the parents, of course, are greatly saddened by that. So now we're close here to being ready to examine physical discipline, but before we do, we should understand the true heart of the parent who withholds it. And Before we glean this from Solomon, I need an answer to a very important question from all the parents in this room. The question is this, are you who you say you are, or are you who God says you are? Are you as insightful to your own nature as your maker, or does he know you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. And here's a follow-up to that. Does God determine the significance of your behavior, or do you? Does your behavior mean about you what the Lord says it means about you? Or do you have some other motivation that you can say, no, 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 this actually is the reason I'm doing it. It's not, it's not the way that God sees it. No, indeed, it is the way that God sees it. So I'm going to hold you to those conclusions here. And as you might have guessed, I will now give you God's determination of us as parents and what our discipline of our children or lack thereof actually signifies about our own nature and our own heart and our own characters. Proverbs 13:24: He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently, as I said to your children, Thus saith the Lord. No physical discipline equals no love. And speaking of the Lord, does he discipline his children? And if so, why does he discipline his children? Well, the answers to both are in Proverbs 3.12. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's what love looks like. Lord chastens those whom he loves. But an important thing to understand is that this is largely a passive and unconscious hatred in the parent who's withholding discipline as opposed to the active conscious kind. And this isn't an excuse, but I think it is a necessary explanation because the parent who withholds discipline thinking that they know their own heart better than God dismisses this because it runs counter to their feelings. They think it is compassion that prevents me from spanking. But your feelings lie to you, mom and dad. In the moment, you may think, I oppose physical discipline because I don't want to hurt my child, but if only you knew better your own heart, you would recognize that what you really want is to prevent your own personal hurt. Think again on Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Now, in the second pass, I'd like to ask you why it is you think that mom is singled out in particular. Why right after, don't withhold the rod? Do not prevent physical discipline. Do you have? Because if you do, he'll shame you, mom. Is it perhaps because women 
have a tendency more so than men to do this sort of thing? Sure. His excess, as we've said previously, is over-discipline of his child, exasperating them, but hers is the opposite. And I saw a movie a long time ago, and I think it was a made-for-TV movie. It wasn't great. But there was a particular scene that's always stuck with me. And, and as the movie goes, I think it was around the time of the Industrial Revolution and the, the husband-father, he's always at work, and so he really has no input into the child's life meaningfully. And um, so the mother's doing all the raising and, and all of that stuff, and she's a total cream puff, just uh, totally coddles him makes excuses for all his bad behavior. And then eventually he becomes so mischievous that she is forced to turn to her husband and say, this kid has got to be spanked. And so he says multiple times, you're sure that this is what you want, knowing her nature. And she says, yes, I'm absolutely sure that this is what I want. And he goes, okay. So he matter-of-factly pulls the kid in and gets, I think, two spankings into it and she comes and she intervenes and wraps her arms around her little baby and prevents anything more and turns against the husband who has initiated this physical discipline. Now, was this woman really intervening on behalf of her son or on behalf of herself? She knew right that her mischievous son needed discipline for his own sake because he was becoming a bad man. But then she relented, not because his need for discipline was satisfied, but because her feelings were hurt. Because what she prized most was not actually her son's well-being, but her desire for her son's affection. He was her idol, and the relationship was her idol, and so she needed to be his idol. But to the parent who still rejects this concept that if you don't discipline your children, you hate them, you should also understand that even if you still refuse to accept this, your children are going to intuit it all on their own. This is one of those manifestations of being made in the image of God that you just cannot suppress. They just know it. They know that the one who provides parameters loves them and the one who gives them free reign does not. This is borne out in the example of my wife over and over and over again at school, where she is a bilingual aide, consistently, she is the only one actually saying no to these children, and consistently they love her the most because they recognize that she is trying to protect them. They love her to the point where she has had to stop joking and saying what she used to commonly say, which is, I would take you home with me. She doesn't do that anymore because they actually want to come home with her and they're from terrible home lives. And so it became a very sad thing. They want to be with her. And so here is another example of the lie inerrant to idolatry, and that is that that which you sell your soul to get, or in this case, the soul of your child, you're going to lose in the end anyhow because the child will grow to hate you because they know in their soul what you refuse to admit, and that is that parents who love say no, and when the need arises, they back that no up. And now, perhaps, we are ready to consider the actual act of physical discipline and how it is to be administered and upon whom. Now, I've already read you numerous passages that speak directly to this and command it, so in addition to what has already been 
quoted, I will simply add this again to remind you, Proverbs 22:15. foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. I'd like to take you through a series of deductions concerning physical discipline based upon all of Solomon's statements about it. First off, there was only one child in the history of the human race that did not require this. Do you know what his name was? Jesus. If your kid's not Jesus, your kid requires this. And perhaps you have heard rumors to the contrary. You know, so-and-so from church, they said that their little Johnny or their little Jane didn't even need spanking or basically didn't need it. And this, again, especially happens with little girls. Common statement from mostly dad but also mom concerning female children is very often something like we just give them a stern look or a stern talking to and they relent, which really practically means they start crying and we understand that to be genuine contrition. But for this mom and dad, I ask, yes, they cry, but do they change? No, they don't change. They're changing you, but their behavior is not actually changing. They get better at masking it. They get better at hiding it. But then they go back to the same behaviors over and over and over again because they very much did need that spanking that you withheld. They just learned that if they turn on the waterworks, you won't get it. And this goes back to a previous lesson in a previous sermon on the capacity of little girls, especially to manipulate in keeping with the way that God has made them. Greater relationship acumen, greater emotional acumen, and they use it. When Solomon says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and that the rod of discipline will remove it far from him, what child is that? Which child is that? What kind of child is that? Or you may say, based upon the plain language of the text, at least it's a him. We know that. No, it's not. He's writing in the masculine form in keeping with the conventions of the Hebrew language. He is referring to every child sparing none. Every single child is a repository of foolishness and wickedness. And so every single child needs to be spanked. Maybe it's because you referenced Alistair Begg this morning, but I can hear him in my head in that Irish accent going, they're all a bundle of sinful potentiality. It's true. It's what they are. How much of spanking in the application of physical discipline requires prudence, and one such very important area is how often. Now, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to this, but I do think there are extremes on both sides that illustrate some very wrong approaches to this and very flawed understandings. First off, if you're spanking your kid every single day, outside of some exceptional season of rebellion, something is wrong. Okay, you do have those times where they freak out for a season and you really have to crack down, but that notwithstanding, it shouldn't be that common, probably shouldn't be close to that common. On the other hand, um, being at least a hopefully trustworthy teacher when it comes to the nature of man, I assure you that if you have a child beneath the ages of maybe 10 to 12 and it's been a year or thereabouts since you spanked them, you are guilty of sinfully withholding discipline from them. That kid doesn't exist. It just doesn't. She doesn't. Now, having said these things, at this point I'd like to give you something of a lightning round concerning practical and biblical wisdom when it comes to spanking, all right? So hang with me here. I'm going to move through these things quickly. 
First in this line is spanking should generally be done with an implement. For women, this will amplify your strength. For men, it will restrain it. So if I hit my children with my hand, I'm a grown man and I'm pretty strong. I can hit them with a bone. I can hit them with a knuckle on accident. That can cause them much harm. They are much safer if I use a belt. This is also important with girls if they reach pre-adolescent stages. You shouldn't be putting your hands on their rear ends as a father when that time comes. Okay, second, spanking must actually hurt. These spankings, they're given because you love your children, but they're not to be love taps. Okay, if your kid can have a full conversation with you right after you spank them, if they go on to tell a joke to their siblings right after you spank them, you're doing it wrong. Next, other forms of discipline are permitted according to Scripture, but no other is prescribed. Can you put them in the corner? Sure. Can you take away privileges? Sure. Is that what God tells you to do, though? No. No, it is not. He commands you to discipline them physically. So this is the command, and those things then are to be considered as supplements to that, but they're not replacements for it. Next, the punishment needs to fit the crime, and the severity of the crime is determined by God. It is not determined by you needs to be godly priorities that dictate the degree of punishment and whether or not you punishment, whether or not you punish. Next, and, and consistent with that, the rules need to be clear and consistent. Model your discipline after God's discipline of you and what incites him to do so. So we went to the Ten Commandments, I think, previously. Let's consider that. There are ten. They are very clear. And these are the the primary rules for Christian living. Your commands need to be clear. They need to not uh, fluctuate from day to day. If it was wrong yesterday, it's wrong today. If it was right yesterday, it's right today. A lot of times parents will do that based upon the way that they feel. I speak to you fathers. Say your kids are in a room and they're just laughing and they're having a good time and you're in a good mood, but they're being a little loud and so you smile. Next day, you're not in a good mood. You got home from work and you had a bad day. Same exact behavior. Kids are being loud, but they're not doing anything bad. They're just squealing and laughing and being happy as children. And you lay into them, you have sinned. They haven't violated the rules. You have violated your own standard. And also degrees are involved in this. When your children disrespect each other, when you have siblings disrespecting each other, that's a sin. You can deal with that. When they disrespect mom, that spanking is going to be nuclear. Okay? It should be. Um, Next, spanking is intervention, and intervention must decrease as a child ages, and influence must increase. Okay? When your children are little, they don't have the comprehension skills to understand all that you say. Therefore, when an 18-month-old runs to the road, you grab them because you don't have the time, the opportunity, and they don't have the capacity for reason. As they get older, that kind of intervention, of which spanking is a type, needs to be phased out. So exactly when you should stop spanking them, I can't tell you. But influence will be all that you have after the point of 18. Okay? Solomon is using influence here. He is teaching. He's not grabbing them anymore and spanking their rear ends. Because you can't do that as an adult. 
So that's the transition that you're making. So the older that the child gets, the more infrequent this should become. And the more of an increase there should be in influence. Spanking, finally, needs to be accompanied by sincere affirmations of love marked by affection and reassurance. Okay, some of the sweetest times that you'll have with the Lord come after times where he has chastened you most severely. You're reminded of his love and his grace, and you turn to him. If you've spanked that kid, you've got to grab him. You've got to hold him. You've got to express your love to them. When my children were very young, I was consistent in explaining what it was that I was doing. I took them through passages like I've just taken you through and said, God says, if I love you, I will do this. And he says, if I don't love you, I won't. Okay? You can't just leave that there at the end and leave that child sobbing. You need to put your arm around them and give them reconciliation in the relationship so that they understand that they're still your child, that this hasn't brought, pushed you apart, that this is something that's necessary to bring you back together. Now, point number five, and this is final, and it's going to be brief, and the reason it's going to be brief is not because it's not a priority, it is, in fact, the priority, but the reason it's going to be brief is because I have stressed it so often. Point number five is gospel your children. Gospel your children. And for prioritization of this, I'd actually like to point you to a seemingly strange passage. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then, build your house. Now, what he's saying in the direct application there is if you don't have food, a place to stay is not really going to help you. So work the field first. But in the same way that don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing had broader application than don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, It applied to pastors and paying pastors, according to the apostle. This one has application far beyond its most obvious point. And that is prioritize your life upon the things that matter most. And the thing that matters most with your children is to lay this foundation of gospel. It's interesting. Are you familiar with the name Sam Brinton? Okay, he's the... I can't remember exactly the position that he used to hold. He was a nuclear something with the Biden administration who specialized in dressing like a woman. And um, then he eventually got busted stealing women's clothing. And I heard a number of right-wing political commentators speculate on what it was that caused this to happen to him, him to become this way. And they believed that it was probably the result of never having been told no by his parents. And I could go along with that if I did not personally know otherwise. But I do, because it turns out he came from the same kind of association of churches that I did. And I know personally the man who now pastors the church that he was raised in. And I can tell you that what produced that kind of licentiousness in that gentleman was not a lack of rules. It was rule after rule after rule with no explanation and very little gospel. That's what you're going to do to your kids, and that's more common than you would know. I have seen that 
over and over and over again. The parents who just teach behavioral mandates to their children and do not give them sufficiently the gospel of grace lose them to the world. They have to understand that these rules are to be aspired to, that they are to be practiced, but that they are not going to be practiced perfectly and they're not damned because of this because Christ did practice them perfectly. Again, you must confess your own sin to your children and model the gospel in their lives. Gospel, gospel, gospel. If you get to the point where you think to yourself, man, I have told this kid often, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. That's not the problem. But if you've told them, don't do this and do this without telling them, Christ did this for you, then you're leaving them to their own condemnation instead of giving them the hope of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to close out this series. Lord, I hope that it has been beneficial, and I hope that your people take these things to heart, Lord. And we thank you for your grace, Father, because as our children need it, we need it in parenting them. And it is only by your grace that they are going to grow into good and godly people who love your Son. And we pray that for them. We pray that you would save their souls. We pray that you would redeem all the lessons and all the learning and all the teaching about your Son and his gospel by saving them. And we praise you and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.